Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. It's good to be together and uh, good to be worshiping the Lord. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and just sort of set our hearts uh, on course in terms of hearing a, a message from the Lord this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness, uh, for the beauty that we see in the spring. Uh, Hope springs eternal, the phrase goes, and we know that our hope in you is forever growing, blossoming. We can trust in you. You have things under control. We're thankful for it. We just pray that as we've come together here this morning, that we'd be ready to hear from you, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be worshiping you that your glory would be seen in your word and through our lives. So guide us, lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we continue to study in the book of Daniel. We study um, the prophetic. We're taking, we took a look last week at the cross, and we talked about how from the prophetic perspective, um, God, was, God was preparing us for the cross or preparing his people for the cross. And if there's one underlying message that would um, come through, whether it be the prophecy about the cross, the prophecy that we see in the book of Daniel here, it would be this, that God's conscious control of historical events communicates his care, even in the midst of of what can seem like chaos. Many times things can seem like they're out of control in this world and frankly, many times they are. But God continues to communicate, I'm involved, I'm taking care of things and look, this is how they're gonna work out and they work out in that way. And so we, um, yeah, we understand that he cares for justice and truth. He will work out his justice and his truth. We also understand his mercy and compassion as he cares for us. And so back in Daniel chapter 7, we saw the anarchy of the beastly kings. We saw Daniel. He was the poster boy for the anxiousness that we sometimes feel as, as followers. And then there was the Ancient of Days, another title given to God. And God, what does he do as he talks about the beast-like kings, the empires. He takes their temporary dominion, their power, their authority that is temporary, he hands it to the Son of Man, a title used when talking about Jesus Christ. And the Son of Man shares that dominion with us, his followers, and it's an eternal kingdom. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture for us But now we get into Daniel chapter 8, and rather than the big wide overview, it kind of narrows its focus on the near future. And so what God communicates to Daniel through this vision is what's going to happen in the next two empires. And so we have uh, Belshazzar still on the throne, it's the end of the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel learned some things that could only be known because God 
who knows the future is communicating them to him. There's no other way he could have understood that. And he won't understand all of the things, all of the details about this. Daniel's going to get this vision. It's going to have some hints. But he's not going to understand everything like we are because we're after this, after this period of time. So we look back on it and we go, oh, that's what God meant. But Daniel, he's sort of looking ahead and going, okay, I, I'm getting some insinuations. I'm getting some hints. And when it comes, I'll know that God was in control, but he doesn't have the information or the understanding that we have because he's looking at things symbolically in this vision. So there are some names actually given too, some clear names. Names are named, but I don't want to go on. I don't want to tell you too much. I want us to see how it unfolds as we go through this together. So I hope by the end of this, we will be more convinced more confident that God knows what he's doing. He knew before how things were going to play out. And I hope that we'll be more established in our faith, that we'll have perfect confidence or a more perfect confidence that the Lord's sovereign. He's sovereign over every empire, over every emperor, over every evil that this world can throw at us. And so this morning we're going to look at the first half of Daniel chapter 8 and we're going to see that even God is in control. God is sovereign over even the most controlling empires. He's sovereign over even the most competent emperors and he's sovereign over even the most corrupt evil. So let's look at this together, begin reading Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in this vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal, the Ulai Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So as we read this, we observe that the dream takes place. It has a setting, okay? So as Daniel's dreaming, he's dreaming, seeing the capital of Babylon, Susa. Now, we don't know if Daniel's there himself. In fact, my guess is maybe he wasn't, because remember how we talked about when, um, when Belshazzar was the king, the young punk king that had the big party and was taken over, right? He didn't know who Daniel was. Before that, with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was the right-hand man of the king, but now 
Belshazzar goes, well, who's Daniel? And his mother had to explain, oh, this and so, this is who the guy is, and this is what he did. So he might not have even been in the capital, we don't know. But when he dreamed, he dreamed about the capital. And the thing that we need to take away from this is that he might have been pushed aside by the human king, but he was not pushed aside by God. He might not have been in the mix right at the right hand of the king. But the king that mattered was still communicating his commitment to use Daniel by showing him these dreams. And the dream before in chapter 7, that was in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Here we are, we're in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, and we know he didn't reign very long. So things are happening, but God is continuing to communicate to Daniel. And Daniel in his dream, he sees this ram... This male sheep on the Ulai, the bank of the Ulai Canal. Now, Ulai is the Hebrew word for Susan, so it wasn't anything too complicated there. But maybe one of the first things that, that caught my mind as I read through this the first time, preparing to preach on this, was that this ram had lopsided horns. Do you remember anybody else who was lopsided before? Remember in chapter uh, 7 at the beginning, the lopsided bear, the second empire? The bear was kind of, I don't know why, he was, well, I do know why, but he was off kilter. And we talked about that being symbolic of media Persia because it was a two-part kingdom. And the one part, Persia, was greater than the other part But there was this connection. Rather than Persia just taking over, they joined together because there was one of those marriage things going on. The daughter, I think, of Media was married to the king of Persia, so they joined together. Now, we could be thinking, and I was thinking, okay, we got lopsided horns here. Is this Media Persia? Is this the Medo Persian Empire that we're talking about here? What do you think? Could they be connected? Well, we could argue, well, no, a bear and a ram, how could they be? But you know what? Different dreams, different symbols, God uses different things. And so usually, well, a lot of times, what happens is you just keep reading. And we're going to sneak ahead to chapter 8, verse 20, where the interpretation is given. And there's no controversy. These lopsided, this ram with lopsided horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. It says it right there, 820. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. There you go. Simple as that. So we are talking about the next empire. And Daniel knew then, this is years before Babylon fell, that the Medo-Persian Empire was going to come in and they were going to take over. So this makes sense. When Belshazzar called him in to read the handwriting on the wall, you remember? He came in, wasn't worked up at all. Matter of fact, says, hey, guess what? The Medo-Persian Empire is going to come in and they're going to take over. Matter of factly states that. Now we know why. Years before, God had communicated that to him in a vision. And this was the clearest, one of the clearest parts of the vision. So God is informing 
Daniel. He's giving him hints. He's sort of telling him, this is how things are going to play out. And there Daniel is, communicating it to others. Babylon, the greatest of all empires, remember the golden head, the lion in the other vision, would be knocked out off without warning by the bear, the Medo-Persian empire. Here described as a furious ram that no one could stop. And this ram is standing on the banks of the canal, which we could think, well, it's just standing on the banks of the canal. Maybe that's a, uh, an important place in Susa. But there is another interesting fact. In history, history tells us that in, in many of the accounts that the Medo-Persian Empire diverted the waterway that ran into Susa, this fortified city, and they were able to march in under the wall. So here, before the fact, in all this symbolism, God's saying, hey, here who, here's who's going to take over. And it has something to do with the canal. <laughs> something to do with this waterway that these guys get in there and they take over. And we understand that God knows what's going to happen beforehand. God has foreknowledge, which doesn't mean just that he understands. He's planned it. And we know that God manages the empires, the most powerful empires. And those aren't the empires that are in the world today. I mean, we're weak compared to the control that these other people had. But God manages the empires, most often by using other empires. And when one gets too proud, too powerful, too polluted, he can bring in another. It's his timing. We remember reading before in chapter 7, verse 12, it talked about for a season. God allowed this to happen for a season. God let those people have power for a time and times and half a time. God has it all measured out. And this is kind of neat because, you know, we, we kind of watch things happen and we kind of think, this is so arbitrary. But God calls the shots, and God also calls his shots. What do I mean by that? Now, I never played a lot of pool. I wasn't one of those kids who skipped out of high school or anything like that. But I remember hearing somebody talk about calling your shots. If you're going to do a difficult shot, right, you tell people what's going to happen beforehand. Not like the rest of us who go, close our eyes and we whack it and then they fly around and a couple of them go in and we go, yeah, I meant to do that. No, no, you call your shots. You say, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to hit this ball, uh, seven in the, yeah, this pocket and blah, 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 blah. And there are guys who can do that and we go, wow, they're amazing. This is God calling his shots saying, this is what's going to happen. You may not believe him. You may not understand it all. But when it happens, you're going to go, oh, he knew what he was doing. He had the ability. He had the control over this situation. So you know what? 
even the most controlling empires will fall. Because God said so. He's in control. Even the most competent emperors will fail. Or are frail, sorry. Are frail. Let's read verses 5 to 8. It says, as I was considering, okay, we've got the ram on the bank of the canal. And Daniel's there going, wow, look at that ram in his vision. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Okay, a flying goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Okay? It was a unicorn goat. There have been those. I think they, they had some pictures on the internet of a goat with one horn. He came to the ram with the two horns. Remember the lopsided horns which I had seen standing in the bank of the canal. He ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn conspicuous one that stuck up between his eyes was broken and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven so if we look back to the previous vision remember the uh, statue the gold the silver the bronze and the iron the second kingdom was made of persia the, uh, the silver, but then the bronze was Greece. So we say, okay, this is Greece. Greece is this rocket-powered billy goat whose feet don't even touch the ground. And you think, really? Is that, is that it? How do we know? Well, there are a lot of characteristics. If you look at it, if you read through this, after the fact, knowing what we know from history, how things played out, it all makes sense. The speed of conquest. Remember we talked about that when we talked about Greece as the leopard, the wing with the four wings on it. Speed of the conquest. A leopard is quick. And Greece was. Greece took over. Boom. Like that. It was like a blitzkrieg, like the German blitzkrieg. They had a conspicuous leader, that horn that was out of the goat's head. Who was the leader of Greece at that time when when Greece took over, when they became the, it was Alexander the Great. There were a lot of kings back then, a lot of guys in control, a lot of leaders of the empires, not just the ones we talk about, but the one guy that I'll, I'll say everybody here has probably heard of is Alexander the Great. You know that name. He was a conspicuous, a standout leader. Why? Well, by the time he was 30 years old, he ran the world. He took over. Also, we see direct conquest. He was the one that attacked Medo-Persia. It wasn't just like, oh, some later guy in some later kingdom after somebody else had taken over, he became great. No, 
He was the one, direct contact, took out Medo-Persia. But then it also says the horn, that conspicuous horn, was broken at the height of his power. And I mentioned this before. Do you remember what happened to Alexander the Great? 33 years old, he owned the world. And he died. And it says four horns grew up in his place. How many heads did the leopard have? Do you remember that one? Four heads on the leopard in the previous vision? Because when Alexander was dying, he said, give my kingdom to the strong. And they interpreted that as his generals. He had four generals. And those four generals were given Greece, the Grecian Empire. But you know what? They couldn't get along. And so instead of the four of them running the Grecian Empire, they split it up. Okay, you take this section here, you take this section over here, you take this section. And what's it say? It talks about the four winds of heaven. They came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Talking about, you know, the south wind. Now that would be the south wind, the north wind, the east and west, depending on which way you're facing. But the four different directions, and that's exactly what happened to the Grecian Empire. It was divided, not in equal parts geographically, but toward different directions. Once again, I find it fascinating, the details. And you say, are you sure we're talking about the Grecian Empire, though? Well, once again, we peek ahead at the interpretation. Verse 21 and 22, it says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is that first king, Alexander. And the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose. Four kingdoms arise from his nation, but not with his power. So none of those four generals had the power that Alexander had, but they had their part to rule over. And what is it we learn from this part of the story, this piece of history? It's not a unique lesson. It's very common. But this situation is like kind of dramatic. It's not one of these little lessons that we learn in our lives or in our little corner of the world. This was a world empire. And here God was showing. God strikes down someone who is regarded as larger than life and an unstoppable leader. God has power over these sort of people. In fact, earlier in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 20, or chapter 2, Verse 21, it says, God sets up kings and he deposes them. God's the one who does it. Not just the empires, but also the emperors. The ones that we think, man, look at that guy. Nobody can stop him. But God does. Moves the pieces around, and we've seen that throughout history. It doesn't matter whether we go back to Israel coming out of Egypt right? The Pharaoh, that guy was powerful. Yeah, after 10 plagues, he wasn't so powerful. He was done. 
We think of, well, let's put it this way. The Pharaoh, he thought he was God and everybody else did too, right? They worshipped him as a God. We, we think about Herod later, New Testament, right? When the people were saying, oh, the voice of a God, when Herod spoke, it says he fell down dead and the worms ate him. See, God controls. We don't have to have any worry, any worry about these emperors or these leaders who we feel have power over us. And we don't have to have any worry that God can control us. Our life is in his hands. He's sovereign. We're frail. And so, God has set the limits of every leader's time. And as it says in that psalm we read, Psalm 21, the first part is the king who God loves. How God can carry him along and hold him up and bless him. The second part, yeah, those who are rebellious against God. Those who set themselves up as kings not under his rule. It says, the Lord will swallow them up. No problem. So even the most competent emperor is frail. That's what we learn in that part. That's the takeaway. Last part that we're going to look at this morning, 9 to 14, it says even the most corrupt evil will fail. Out of one of them... Now, we're talking about those four horns that sprang up to replace the one horn, okay? One of those four generals. Out of one of them came a little horn, another leader, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and east, toward the glorious land. It grew even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts, some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Holy one, an angel. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giver giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So the story, this vision carries on. This other king rises up. This little horn rises up from one of those four generals. And it talks about that king ruling to the south and east, okay, that would be the Greece is here, the south and east of Greece toward the beautiful land. What do you think the beautiful land is? Israel. 
And so this general that ruled in that area, his name was Seleucus. One of the kings that came after him, one of those little, this, this king was a, this little horn that was spoken of. And what does he do? It says he beats down some of the stars of heaven. Hmm. Abraham's descendants? Right? Abraham was told, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. And it says he interrupted worship. What did he do? Well, he stopped the sacrifices. There was no more meeting in the temple. That's what it says. He became great, verse 11, even as great as the prince of hosts. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And as with the fourth beast in chapter 7's vision, this one, this little horn, is seen as more evil than the other kings. And it's easy to see why. Because there's a direct attack on God's people. There is a direct attack on the worship of God. There's a direct attack on God himself. Even the holy ones in the dream were disturbed by the nature of this catastrophic evil. And they're asking about it. What's going on? I mean, this isn't just a matter of some king rising up and wanting power and to take over, but he is attacking God's people, God's worship, and God himself. The angels are concerned. What's going on? It should be no surprise that this sort of history bothers us. That when we see things falling apart, it bothers us if it even bothered the angels. But if you want to find out who that little horn is, you're going to have to come back next week. We're going to talk in a little more detail about that next week. But all I want to make a note of right here is the fact that once again, we're told that there will be a limit set on this evil. That's what it says in verse 14. The angel said to me, the Holy One, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. God will restore things. That's the insurance in this vision. We think of that. That is who our God is. He's a God who restores He's a God who resurrects. He's a God who redeems. That's what we were celebrating last week. Here, we see kings take over. God restores order. Last week, the Lord was in the tomb, and then there was a resurrection. We look at our own lives, our own struggles, our own chaos. But God redeems. What's our response? You see, I pushed through this history fairly quickly because I wanted to leave a good amount of time for us to think about the application of these truths. 
I find it fascinating. In fact, I can get lost in reading about the history. There's more to it than I've shared with you this morning. Just because, you know, you get reading, you oh, wow, this ties in and this fits. And it's, it's kind of fascinating because, I don't know, somehow the history you learn in school doesn't quite cut it. But when you're, when you're going, wow, God knew about this beforehand, and look how this all fits together, it gets kind of, kind of interesting. But we, we push through that because there has to be some kind of a good response from this. We can't just go, wow, God is conscious of what's going on. He's under, he has everything under control, and he cares, and then just go on and live our lives like everybody else is living our lives. And that is too often the problem. You and I, children of God, who know he has things under control, we see how history is playing out according to his plan, and then we just kind of muddle our way through this life like everyone else. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian thinker, back in the the 70s, back when I was a kid, he wrote a book called how should we then live? Based on what we know about God. Based on what we read in his word about what's going to happen. Based on the fact that he lives within us, how should we live? And it's not like everybody else lives. It's not just a one day at a time like so often we do. You know, just, oh, getting my things done. (laughs) We talked about it this morning, coming in, oh, how was your week? And I've said this several times this morning, oh, it was busy. But if my, my week was just busy, if I was just doing stuff, then that's not accomplishing God's purposes. Yeah, we can end up doing a lot of the stuff of this life, but how are we doing it? If we see that God is conscious and not just, oh, I'm aware of what's going on. No, foreknowledge, remember? He sees it, he knows it because he's planned it. If God is conscious, and we're his children and he's shared this truth with us, we should live conscientiously. If God has things under control, then we should live more confidently. If we see that God cares, if he cares about what's going on in this world, the world we live in, and he cares about us as his children, then we realize we can live in a carefree way. Now, not careless way, but carefree. And I want to look at these three words. I want us to think about how we live conscientiously, confidently, and carefreely in this life. Think about conscientious living. What is that? In light of the fact that God has everything planned out, how do we live in a way that's conscientious? We should be prepared for what's taking place and we should be preaching. Two words, 
To live conscientiously, we should be prepared and we should be preaching. In light of what the Lord says in his word, we should at least be spiritually prepared for what's going to happen. There are going to be nations rising, nations falling. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be going, I never saw that coming. (laughs) This cycle has been going. If we just study history, we should see what's going on but especially from the standpoint of a child of God. We know he is in control. We know he wants to show his glory. And he will. And he'll show his glory, not through things, everything turning out okay in the end, in terms of this world. No, sometimes he shows his glory through the worst events that happen in this world. So we shouldn't be surprised at the way things are going. We shouldn't be surprised at empires rising and fights taking place and and the spiritual oppression that is going on even in our own country. Oh, this has happened before. What did Jesus say? There will be many antichrists. There'll be many anti-Christian movements. In fact, the time that that we have come through in, in North America, where there's been such a place of protection for Christianity, we should be surprised that that ever happened. So what do we do? Is it about becoming preppers and building bunkers in their backyard? And no, we should we should be conscientious and and wise as we take care of things, right? But more so, knowing what's taken place, we should be preaching. We should be sharing the gospel because, I mean, we see what's going on here. It's a cyclical thing, and we're only here for a short time, and. Those people around us, they're only here for a short time too. What about the eternal message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about being conscientious in terms of, these people are lost. But lovingly sharing with them through the way we live and the things we say, there is a greater hope in Jesus Christ being more capable witnesses of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to that gospel. We can have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus that goes beyond this life. Have you got that relationship? Are we sharing that with other people? Is that a priority? That is what living conscientiously is all about. Yes, in the fabric of what's going on in this life. I'm not saying quit your jobs and abandon your families and just go wandering off, you know. No, in in this life that God's given us to live, follow his directives, listen to his voice, walk hand in hand with him because that is key. But live conscientiously according from the perspective to the perspective that he gives us. 
You think, how though? How can I, like, and when all this is coming down on us, and and I always go back to that example in Acts chapter 8, where the persecution comes on the church at Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, verse 4, it says, the people were scattered. They were being persecuted. Chased down. Imprisoned. Killed. And it says they were scattered preaching. As they scattered, as they ran for their lives, they were sharing Christ. They were living conscientious conscientious of what really was going on. It's not just about me saving my life. No. This is God's plan. Not the world unraveling, but God bringing his plan together. And so that was primary. Conscientious living. First thing. The second thing, confident living. We don't need to despair what is going on in this life. And it it can be easy. I mean, As you get older, you see the changes, the things that have taken place. This is where we were then. This is here we are, where we are now. And we go, what's going on? But we know what's going on. Because of God's word. Because of what he tells us. Because he says, this is how it's going to play out. And so we don't need to despair. And we don't need to despise those who are over us. We need to understand that they're lost. In light of the direction of history, in light of the evil of the history makers, we can recognize their failures. We can recognize even their evil. But with an understanding that God has this under control. He has them under control. We have truth on our side. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, right? John 14. We know that God has this in the end. And so we can be confident as we live our lives under the leadership that we have that is evil and in a world that from time to time, we, we, we get that. We're faced head on. We're attacked maybe. Or we feel the evil that's around us. Let's be confident. And thirdly, carefree living. As I said, not careless living. Worry-free despite the circumstances. How can we live worry-free, if we're being conscientious and we know what's going on, how can we be carefree? How is that possible? But you think of some of the people who've gone through the most difficult times as followers of God. You think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, he understood the evil that was going on in the world directed against the Christians Because he was a part of it. And then all of a sudden he swings around and he's on the other side. He's conscious of what was going on. But man, what did he do? Wherever God directed, he went, didn't he? He was there. He was preaching. And does that mean he, as he lived his 
carefree life that he never was in pain, no suffering. He never died. Oh yeah, he was killed. But he was just going along, doing what God had called him to do. We think of a guy like John the Baptist, carefree. I think some of us would call him careless. (laughs) But he was carefree. And he preached. He wasn't concerned about his clothing. He wasn't concerned about what he ate. He lived in the wilderness. And he preached the kingdom of God, preparing the way for Christ. And when he was pulled in before Herod, no, I don't think he was pulled in. He went and he said, you're a sinner. You killed your brother. You took his wife. I mean, there's a little bit of that confidence mixed in there too. (laughs) He's not worried. Here's truth. We're challenged, aren't we? I'm challenged. But we still say, it's hard. It's hard to know how we're supposed to live. It's hard to have that carefree confidence in what God is going to do and just live our lives in light of it. But we tend not to be confident in God's care because we have not tested it with obedience. We've not tested it with the obedience he's called us to. Now, I'm not talking about testing God with foolishness. Sometimes we say, well, I'm going to do this. God, save me. (laughs) Take care of us. I'm taking a risk here. No, I'm talking about when God prompts us to do something. I mean, if if you're a believer in Christ, you have his spirit living in you, and his spirit is poking you. I've talked about this before. Is pushing you, is saying, you should do this. Are you listening? Am I listening? And it may not be some huge thing where God's dangling you off a, a cliff and saying, trust me, it's just this next step. Talk to this person. Live in this way. Do this thing. Leave that sin behind. And God is speaking to us and saying, do this. And we go, yeah, no. We're never going to live with an understanding of his care if we're not willing to step out in obedience. You might say, well, you're meddling. You're pushing us around. I'm not telling you to do anything specific. If I was meddling with your lives, I'd be putting a list up here and going, okay, everybody got to check these boxes. All I'm saying to us in this room is we need to be more aware. We need to be more aware of our personal relationship with the Lord if we're going to grow in confidence. We need to be following these little areas of of obedience. Waking up in the morning saying, God, how would you lead me today? I wake up in the morning. Sometimes it's even, I'm not even sure if I'm awake, but the list already, oh, I've got to do this, 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 and this. And you know what? You may have to do this, 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 this. We may be responsible to do this, 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 even in God's plan. But how about we say, okay, God, 
you lead me. And if there are things on this list that I shouldn't be doing, and if there's something else you want to put in, you do it. You arrange that list. I'm listening to you. I'm submitting to your plan. Because this is the way that we grow in confidence in a personal relationship. Because there's no way that you and I can, you know, suspend ourselves between this conscientiousness of what's going on in the world and a carefreeness. How do you balance that? There's a whole spectrum here. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> no. The Spirit leads us. God leads us personally. This is why Christ came into the world. This is, I mean, he showed us how to live. But it wasn't that we take every piece of what he did and say, okay, I'm going to do what he did here, do it. No, he came, he died, he rose again, he left his spirit to indwell and lead us. And I think, I know I'm not taking advantage of this in the way I should. I think we all aren't. So as we take a text like this, yes, we can go, oh, we're right after all. God is in control. God does know what's going on. He is sovereign over the world. It's not just to do that. It's to do that, but then to say, then how should I live? I'm not an emperor. I'm not Alexander the Great. I'm not one of these. But how does God want me to live? It's one of his children. Well, with confidence in him. Looking at life from his perspective. Conscientiously sharing this glorious gospel with other people through the way we live and the things that we do. And with a carefreeness. God's got this. God's got us. Now let's see what he's going to do through us. Father, help us. Help us to, to live our lives in fellowship with you, deeper fellowship. Help our lives uh, to be something that honor and glorify you. Help us as a, a congregation, as a, a family, to encourage one another on, spur one another on, to love and good works, love for you and, and just an obedience in our lives. May we be a people who are moving forward to lift up your name, to exalt your truth. You've given us the foundation. You've shown us in your word and through history that you have perfect control. May we, as we walk through this life, may we trust you more and live out the life in fellowship with you, 
responding to your spirit. Lord, help us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.